Why is this important? <laughs> if you get things wrong, the problems can be quite significant. Hi, and welcome to The Laundry, a podcast connecting AML, compliance and financial crime to the real world. I'm your host, Marit Radvan, CEO of Strice, and in this episode we're asking, how does compliance keep the legal world ethical? Law firms are responsible for some of the largest transactions globally, from big-name mergers and acquisitions to huge real estate deals and to setting up new companies. But no money movement is without risk, and the legal sector often comes close to some of the most high-risk sectors in the world. So, how does AML and compliance help to keep the sector on the straight and narrow? What are the biggest challenges when it comes to money laundering, politically exposed persons and sanctioned individuals? And why is it so important to get this right? To delve into this topic, I'm joined by Bruno Idenergy, Head of EU Compliance and Data Protection Officer at Auric, Harrington and Sutcliffe. Hi, Bruno. Hi. Welcome to The Laundry. Uh, what should listeners know about Auric and your role in there? Uh, well, Auric is a US firm, a global firm. Uh, we operate primarily in the US, uh, but we also have offices around the world. Uh, my role, I'm the head of EU compliance at Oric, and I'm also the firm's data protection officer. So I hold a few roles, a few responsibilities, um, very interesting. Uh, on the compliance side, um, I deal primarily with anti-money laundering, uh, looking at financial sanctions, professional ethical requirements as well. And on the data protection side, we look at laws globally uh, affecting the firm wherever we operate. Um, so it's a very dynamic role, uh, very interesting, and you're always learning. And anti-money laundering is one of those key areas uh, affecting the firm uh, that uh, you know that I'm involved in, also as a deputy MLRO as well, at quite a high level, and also assisting our teams with the uh, routine day-to-day checking and just ensuring that our clients are who they ought to be and that the firm remains safe and operates well. Mm. Thanks for that intro. So let's dig into the conversation. This episode of The Laundry is brought to you in association with Vidvask and Terror Financing Conference in Copenhagen. This is the event for all those working to tackle AML and terror financing in 2023. Bringing together experts across the financial, private and public sectors is a chance to learn and discuss the hottest topics in the industry right now. The conference is taking place on October 11th and 12th, 2023. Find out more at insightsevent.dk. So we've covered a lot of AML topics within banking. So this is the first episode we do on the legal sector. So I think it would be super interesting to hear for those who are not so familiar with like the intersection of AML and legal, how important is compliance and AML practices in this industry? Uh, It's very important. Um, I think a good way to think about it, if you're new to understanding the UK legal sector, is to think about the sources of the actual laws and rules themselves in relation to anti-money laundering. So I guess the first source relates to the lawyer's professional obligations. Um, They hold numerous obligations, but one is to always act with integrity, uh, to uphold the rule of law and the administration of justice, um, and also to ensure that their services are not misused by their clients. So that provides them with a more general obligation to ensure that, for example, in the in the case of anti-money laundering, that they are aware that they do know their clients, they are aware of the red flags that they ought to uh, look out for in order to detect money laundering and terrorist financing. 
Um, but the second source, uh, which is also important, are the regulatory and legal laws as well. Uh, so uh, in the UK, you have the UK anti-money laundering regulations, um, but there are other guidelines and other uh, laws within the UK that the lawyer does need to uh, ensure that they are aware of and comply with on a day-to-day basis. So in terms of importance, I guess it's important because falling foul of those rules uh, can be quite significant. Uh, firstly, I guess, in terms of the reputation of the legal profession as a whole, uh, but also for the firm itself, uh, reputationally, and also for the individuals involved who may be fined and suffer other sanctions as a result of breaches of the AML regulations. And in recent times, uh, there have been cases of law firms, uh, some large law firms, quite prominent as well, um, who have uh, fallen foul of the uh, regulations and the applicable laws. And, and as a result, they've you know faced an adverse or unwanted um, scrutiny from the regulators and reputational damage as well. So it's very important. Um, I guess also thinking about the legal profession, as you say, it's a slightly different animal to uh, the financial industry and banks in particular. Um, the AML rules don't apply uh, consistently across uh, all legal services. Um, no, because it's just, you know, where there is actually monetary transactions that money moves or oh, shifts hands. That's where those like laws come into play, right? Precisely. And I think um, if you go a bit further back, um, the Financial Action uh, Task Force, who uh, sets the international standards for uh, anti-money laundering and which a number of countries have gold-plated and implemented within their own local laws, um, those are actually developed with the financial industry in mind. And um, it doesn't necessarily translate as well uniformly across the whole legal industry. So the AML rules only apply uh, where law firms and lawyers are involved in financial transactions. So uh, real estate transactions and conveyancing uh, or where there's the use of the client account and so forth. Um, but for those firms which aren't, for example, involved in those, that type of activity, whether it be just purely litigation or advisory work, then the requirements of the regulations, for example, due diligence, etc., don't necessarily apply. Um, but if you're in big law, um, you know, uh, they offer full services. Um, each lawyer has an interest in ensuring that their, their counterparts, those who they work with on a day-to-day basis, are complying with the regulations because whatever affects them yeah. um, will affect everyone. True. And um, we but all you, work together. True. But you mentioned in the beginning here that... Uh, you guys need to also make sure you comply and do a lot of activities so you are not exploited by clients because, you know, clients might take advantage, especially of a, you know, a tier one law firm, mm. it's a reputable brand, etc. Have you got, do you have any examples where you guys have uncovered that someone is actually trying to, like, exploit us and, you know, we can't accept them as a client or need to kick them out? Has that occurred? Um no, not in my experience. It's quite. I think it, it can be quite unusual to detect um, activity where you actually see that the client is trying to misuse uh, your services. Lawyers, because of their ethical obligations, um, I'd like to think they're quite risk adverse. As soon as they see something, um, they tend to uh, step away from it. And uh, our regulator, the SRA, for example, has uh, mentioned in the past that uh, they've seen amongst firms that there is a relatively low level of uh, reporting of activity to the authorities. And that may be because because of the risks are so high in acting for those types of clients, 
um, firms themselves de-risk and they try to avoid uh, certain uh, transactions or certain clients or certain jurisdictions um, to avoid that type of risk and to ensure that they're able to operate uh, without seeing the type of uh, AML activity. But I guess as a firm and in my experience over the years that I've been working in law firms, uh, I've had to submit uh, suspicious activity reports, work with our MLRO and disclose information to the, S, uh, to the NCA uh, where relevant. And it's been interesting. And you can think of, uh, I think, where the risk has come up the most um, has been in uh, conveyancing transactions and in particular the source of funds. And that's yeah. something that uh, uh, our regulator uh, focuses on. So it's uh, a particular in focus of interest. But I can yeah. imagine with a lot of foreign money have gone into the UK in the last years and bought up a lot of property and done a lot of, a lot of investments. And, you know, a lot of those individuals now might be facing sanctions, etc. So I can imagine source of funds is a it's a big, uh, big thing. You also mentioned debanking because no de-risking. Sorry. I spoke to someone the other day who also saw a big like a trend within de-risking that you know, you're so afraid to take on risk, so you just don't. But then you end up with sort of a two-tier system, so mm. to say. Those who are just like, no, we're not taking on, and you only get, like, good clients. And then there's the other ones who's like, you know what, let's specialize mm. more towards the high-risk ones. And do you see that trend in the mark in the legal market? or? Um, I haven't seen that trend. I, I, there, there is evidence that m many firms are de-risking. So, for example, within the UK legal industry, um, we have client accounts. Um, client accounts, they're not common uh, in the US. I think in France, they don't have that model. We do either. have it in Norway. You have it in Norway. Yeah. Um, but yeah, client accounts, obviously, they can be useful and are necessary for certain transactions, uh, particularly conveyancing. Uh, but it does come with risk. And uh, they've been used uh, quite well during uh, M&A activity as well, where you're receiving funds perhaps from investors or you're paying money out to uh, related parties. Um, and that brings a lot of risk, not just from an administrative perspective, but also you're receiving funds, you're having to undertake due diligence on that, uh, and you're quite unsure as to, you know, where the uh, money has come from. You try your best, but it doesn't rule out risk altogether. So True. there's a trend amongst uh, US firms, um, and I believe Magic Circle firms, where they have actually stepped back from using the client account and now they just think it's too high risk too high risk that's super interesting because yeah the the client accounts also it's not so transparent right it's mm. uh so in norway that was a lot of the conversation but uh, you mentioned also due diligence talk to me about how you guys do due diligence on your clients and like the red flags if there are any you know that you guys look for um due diligence so i guess due diligence as i'm sure many know uh comprises uh, understanding who your client is, ver verifying their identity, um, also verifying the identity of the beneficial owners and just having a better understanding of the transaction, the instructions, and just the uh, client's profile itself. Um, but due diligence is also risk-based. Um, so the regulations now and uh, guidance that we have from the Law Society requires you to perform a risk assessment uh, on the client. And it's actually a very useful exercise because with due diligence, um, it's quite an onerous task. Yeah, uh, But is. if you do carry out the risk assessments, then you can tailor your efforts 
uh, where needed. So for high-risk clients, you'll obviously uh, undertake more due diligence. Uh, if they're low-risk, for example, they're regulated by the FCA, then you may do a little bit less. Um, are you guys doing this internally? Have you built up a team who sits and does that? Or are you using, you know, how yeah. does it look like in, on the organizational level? Yes, we have a team, uh, an AML team, which uh, performs uh, the due diligence. Uh, we rely quite heavily on technology as well. Um, so uh, using databases which enable you to uh, gather information on clients, uh, on directors and beneficial owners, and even where you're acting for private individuals, uh, rather than, uh, as in years past, you would um, obtain passports and utility bills, now uh, undertaking that through an ID verification system, which is uh, much better, much more efficient, and uh, more client-friendly yeah, as well. Definitely. Yeah, definitely. What's the thing that annoys you the most about that process, like client due diligence? Like, oh, you know, you look at it and it's like, oh, man, we still have to do this. So annoying. Um, I think, well, it's because we're a global firm and um, you're acting for clients across the world, in certain jurisdictions, it's easier to perform due diligence just because of the laws in that place and the culture just mean that uh, information is more accessible. Uh, you can go to company's house or you can go to the relevant company registry and extract the information quite easily. Um, in other locations, they don't have the same systems. And um, because of that, even the databases that you rely on from time to time can't give you the information that you need. So that requires you to interact with the client to ask for information, to go back to the more manual route and that can take time. Um, and um, obviously, you don't want to trouble the client. Uh, you want to uh, make the onboarding process as smooth as possible. But because of those, uh, I guess, deficiencies or differences in how uh, particular jurisdictions address uh, company registry of information, um, there, there those challenges uh, do come up. And it, it can be frustrating. It takes more time, more resource. and. Um, you would just prefer a smoother process um, in the ideal world. <laughs> in the ideal, yeah, ideal world. I agree. So, um, what is the top priorities that you have? Like top three priorities going forward for Auric in the AML compliance space? Um, well, me personally, I am always focused on continuing improvement. Personally, always wanting to develop and improve, but also for the firm as well and the uh, areas that I manage to improve how things are done. Um, and as a result, I'm part of a number of external groups with my peers, uh, trying to learn from them, pick their brains, see what's impacting them. And you often learn that you're all suffering from the same problems. Yes. And yeah. then you can learn from each other, understand what technologies they are using or suggest technologies. Um, and for me, one priority is just improving our processes. Um, enhancing them, seeing what technologies can uh, support us, uh, can make things easier, uh, can provide better quality of data uh, for our partners as they want to understand who their clients are. Um, so that's one priority. I guess uh, the second priority uh, for me is um, just um, that continual awareness for our teams. Um, as a uh, compliance person, sometimes you can get stuck running the checks and not having the context, knowing how things have changed because the money laundering risks don't always remain the same. No, uh, it, cha it can criminals, change quite fast. They do. Um, so it's important to remain up to date, to see what the trends are in order to inform the firm 
and to protect the firm uh, and our partners um, from those risks which do exist. Um, so that's the second item. Uh, third priority, I guess, is working with Strice, the, <laughs> <laughs> the, the early access program, okay. I think. Um, for I'm me, glad it, to hear. For me, it's uh, actually uh, quite important because I think um, when you're looking at technologies, um, you don't just want to uh, obtain something and bolt it on to something that you already have. For example, in a global firm, uh, you utilize a range of resources. You may have four or five databases on the go just to perform uh due diligence on one single client and that's how things are but you know um, I like what Strice are wanting to do to understand the problems um, impacting firms working together uh, to see how we can uh, address those issues um, and if it's possible I guess my zenith as it were is for there to be one tool to rule them all if I could uh, that's what everyone in compliance <laughs> says like everyone's like oh I have so many tools I know. why can't we just have that magic wand and just be you know magic wand and just one tool I know I know but that, it's still that, very fragmented the process is and, yeah it is we're working on it we're working on it no I'm looking forward to working but on you it. mentioned in the beginning like priority one peer groups and knowledge sharing and you know it's very interesting um, well to hear that you are doing it because one of the things in my experience in this AML compliance industry is that there's so little incentive to share hmm. publicly like hey we are struggling with this can someone help us whereas in the like tech world, it's so many times you hear someone, hey, we are struggling with this problem. This is not working. This is not working. We try this. Can someone help us? But in the compliance space, it's like if you shared everything, hey, we don't have our sanctions program up to date. We're really struggling implementing this. Like the regulators would come knocking on your door mm. the next day. So, but sharing will improve the situation for everyone. But it's such a weird dynamic, I find. I don't know if you... That's why you have the more close peer groups, I assumed. Yeah, um, I think it's important um, to share information, um, particularly amongst peers. I don't feel there should be uh, competition in that sense where, you know, you're kind of pointing fingers. We're all... Because it's like working towards the greater good, like fighting financial crime. But do you feel the same, that that there's no real incentive to kind of share publicly what is not working because the risk is so big? Uh, I guess that's true. Um, you don't want to put your hand up and no. say, oh, my uh, sanctions process is almost non-existent because, uh, <laughs> you know, that would not be good f- uh, for the firm if anyone did find out. So um, I-, I understand it from that perspective. But at the same time, I think the only way to improve is to learn from others. True. Um, and I think that you do need to be open about, you know, maybe what the challenges are. And each firm is different. Each firm has its own risk profile. They have their own uh, resources or they, you know. um, So what you learn from one uh, and the struggles of one, um, it may be particular to yourself. So perhaps you don't need to uh, disclose everything. But uh, just generally understanding um, where the industry is moving, how things are are improving how other teams work, uh, the size of their teams, uh, the programs they use. Um, I don't know, I find that um, so valuable and uh, it just helps you uh, to understand where things are moving and to support the firm and to you know address the risks in the right way. Mm, yeah. 
there's one topic that I want to touch upon before we uh, uh, end the conversation as well, and that is about you know get, getting back to the topic of how how fast things change in in uh, like anti money laundering and um, how and and that space is. Uh, the war in Ukraine, obviously, and now we are at the 11th sanction package in a year and a half. So things are changing really, really fast. And did the invasion of Ukraine act as a like wake up call for many legal firms? You I think th- I think it did. Um, I think one thing it highlighted was that it's so important to have um, good quality data and records identifying your clients and their beneficiaries and directors. So that if uh, where the, uh, there are these geopolitical changes and sanctions, for example, that you can quickly go back, look at your data, knowing that it's current and can determine whether, you know, you're exposed on the sanction side uh, and things of that nature. Um, and for me, when that event happened, then you begin thinking about, OK, well, how can we um, ensure that our checks are updated routinely yeah. um, and you know, you want something which automates your monitoring that, you know, provides you with alerts rather than uh, in the past having a team member designated with going through your entire client list and, you know, running manual searches. And, uh, you know, that's very onerous. It's not the best way to do things. And there is technology now available uh, to assist with that. But certainly, and I think firms which have an AML program um, probably fared better than others that didn't. Uh, for example, in certain locations, um, you know, they don't have the same level of AML rules that we do in Europe or in the UK. Uh, so they didn't have information on beneficial owners and directors to hand. And it, then it became more difficult to uh, look back at their client list and see where the risks are, to see where they're exposed. So I think it did act as a wake-up call. Um, and now uh, firms uh, that I know of are interested in perfecting their data and looking at programs which can assist them to maintain this ongoing monitoring obligation. And I think that's probably one of the trickier aspects of um, the due diligence um, that you do on clients. The onboarding is one thing, but it's the ongoing monitoring, um, having that information updated um, and current and and then that information becomes valuable because if it just remains static once you've done it, then yeah. you know that doesn't really help you no. address. And also, the risk. if someone's on, they can just change it after being onboarded, like as a as a strategy too. So yeah, it's important with the like perpetual KYC. Hmm. But just on the legal side, um, there was a report. I'm just going to find the numbers here. So it was a report from the UK government. It was that. Russia was highly dependent on Western countries for legal services, and 85% of all legal services were being imported from G7 countries, and UK accounted for 59% of these imports. I got to ask you, you must have heard some like horror stories like that you can share, maybe anonymously. Did you? Are there anyone you heard about the legal sector in the UK that suddenly had a lot of oligarchs that were sanctioned in their portfolio, and, and what happened? Um. Did I hear? Uh, well, I guess, um, as you say, I think, um, you know, uh, firms have historically worked closely with uh, Russian uh, clients. And, you know, it's it was fine at that time. Obviously, the sanctions changed the landscape. And I think um, certain firms then had to take a position, um, which for some can be quite difficult because the sanctions doesn't, uh, you know, write off the entire nation um, 
And you had to be careful. And I know certain firms released information saying, look, we comply with all obligations, uh, under law sanctions and so on. But, um, you know, also we don't want to discriminate against an entire uh, nation because of the issues that are happening there. Um, so um, I did hear some stories, but those are mainly read. Um, and yeah, that's probably as much <laughs> as I can say. <laughs> all right, all right. But uh, so if, like, let's say uh, you guys get a sanctions hit in your client portfolio, um, what would be the process then, like from a legal perspective? What, what would like a, a law firm need to do then? Uh, well, I guess depending on the sanctions hit, um, you would obviously need to um, report that to uh, senior management within the firm, whether that be uh, the compliance officer for the legal practice or the MLRO or whoever it may be. Um, and then depending on the nature of the hit, um, you would probably work to extricating yourself from that uh, relationship if you're prevented from providing ongoing uh, legal advice or services. Uh, that can make things difficult and you would have to uh, try and address that as best as possible. This brings me to an interesting topic, which is the culture of compliance. Because mm. I can't imagine that, you know, back in the day before the AML legislation hit the legal sector, it was more about, you know, let's get clients, let's build the hours. And now suddenly there is this whole friction in the customer onboarding journey. And some lawyers might not like that as much and might not think, oh, yeah, it's a checkbox exercise. Is it really this important? How, or first of all, have you guys been able to kind of foster a culture of compliance at Auric? And how did you go about doing it and making sure that everyone kind of understands the severity of this and how important it is? Um, it's a collective effort, I would say, at Auric. Um, we have a, a great team um, starting from the general counsel's office um, and to the uh, local uh, subject matter ex experts in uh, particular locations as well. But um, we provide a lot of training. Um, our GC and uh, the deputies um, are always looking at ways to communicate information in innovative ways, um, to share war stories, uh, for example, learning from the failures perhaps of uh, other firms or mistakes that others have made uh, in order to inform our people of how best to operate uh, within, uh, you know, this uh, dynamic regulatory environment. Um, but um, I think developing a culture of, of compliance is, is so important. As you say, if it then becomes a tick, spot, tick box exercise, um, it can be quite difficult. You can miss issues miss a lot of stuff. and um, just expose the firm to risk. So that continual awareness, um, sharing of information, um, and ensuring that our people are trained and in tune with our policies and procedures is so key. And I think part of that is having a compliance team um, who are almost uh, separate from uh, the partners um, because um, our role, my role, is to look after the firm. Um, that's why I think about, I also think about the uh, commercial aspect of the firm, of them doing well, being able to do work. So I don't try to stop work from happening, but... I look for issues which could um, affect the firm. And if there are issues, um, it's about having a conversation. If you do, for example, screen the client, you may find some adverse media. Um, it's about, okay, well, how do we address that? How do we overcome mm. that? What risk does this present to the firm? And having that discussion with the partners, with uh, senior members of the firm, and addressing that together. And we do that um, very well. Um, 
uh, at Oric, and I'm sure many other firms uh, would say they do the same also. Um, so yeah, continual awareness um, and also testing your systems. Um, I think that's very important. Um, the regulations require you to, um, I think, set up an independent audit function, um, which can be very difficult um, yeah. within firms to have that. Uh, so you may hire externally, and um, Auric have done the same. And it's a very good learning um, tool uh, to learn about your processes and systems, and to see, and for someone to come in from the outside and say, oh, "Look, you're doing well," but you know, from our experience, you know, this could be done better, or you could do this. Have you considered that? And I think that's so invaluable as well. So um, testing your systems and raising awareness amongst your people, I think, really helps to develop that culture of compliance and communicate why it's important and um yeah and i guess when you do have those war stories knowing that i don't want <laughs> those things to happen to me is usually yes, a good motivator for sure <laughs> so just to close out the conversation why do you think it's so important like with your words why is it so important to get anti-money laundering and compliance right because some people might hear oh compliance and think oh that's so boring but like why is this important well, I think it's important because of the impact of getting things wrong. <laughs> if you get things wrong, um, the problems can be quite significant uh, for the firm, uh, for you personally, and uh, also for the industry. And, um, you know, as I said at the beginning, lawyers, they have um, an obligation to ensure that uh, trust in the profession is maintained at the highest standard. And where you do see those failures, um, it just doesn't affect uh, one firm, it affects all. So the Panama Papers and things of that nature where law firms were uh, deemed professional enablers uh, of you know uh, these uh, activities um, doesn't look well upon uh, anyone within the legal industry. So uh, us being able to maintain our obligations at the highest standard helps us personally, but it helps the entire industry. And, um, and obviously it keeps um, the, uh, the bad guys away. So... Um, I think it's very important, the risk of getting things wrong, but also uh, our clients. And, you know, that's the most important thing. Um, they want to ensure that the lawyers that are uh, representing them uh, are upholding the laws and regulations, um, that they will not incur any uh, reputational damage by being associated with us. So um, it goes hand in hand um, with the business, ensuring that we're doing everything properly. Uh, we'll only be better uh, for us uh, operating as a business within this industry. That brings the spin of the laundry to an end. Bruno, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, where can people find out more about you and connect with you? Uh, I'm on LinkedIn. So if uh, anyone wants to connect with me, um, please look up Bruno Edenage um, at Auric and uh, you'll find me and I'll happily accept your invites. So, uh, thank you for having me. Thank you for listening. If you have enjoyed this episode, don't forget to check out the back catalog and follow The Laundry on your podcast platform of choice or subscribe to our YouTube channel. And please also leave a review if you think this was good. To get in touch with The Laundry team, you can comment on the Strice LinkedIn page or email laundry at strice.ai. Your host for this episode was me, Marit. Our producer was Matthew Dunn-Miles. Our engineers were Niklas Thun and George Stuka. The Laundry is proudly produced by Strice, an AML intelligence platform. To find out more about Strice, go to strice.ai. See you next time.